Welcome everyone to the best of the best, Maverick's Guide to Success. I am your host, Maverick Levy, and I am always so appreciative that you are tuned in and listening to the podcast. Real quick, listen up everyone. I have some more merch to send out to all of the listeners. I'm moving to Florida. And with that being said, I was able to dig up some more merch. So if you're listening right now, go to the Instagram page, Twitter page, Facebook, even LinkedIn and direct message the podcast account. And if you don't know the at, it is TBOTB pod, send your full name, address and size. And if we have it, I will send it out and first come first serve. So be quick on the trigger with that one. I hope everyone has been enjoying their week and leading by example in whatever they do in life. And make sure, being a leader, that you are spreading the word about the show. As you know, I always say leading is about uplifting and helping others along the way. So you will help them by having them listen to this show because they will be educated and they will be more prepared for things in life that maybe they wouldn't have been in otherwise. But make sure you're subscribed on whatever platform that you use. And that way you're also helping the show grow. And when you are subscribed, you will be notified when a new episode comes out. Which if you didn't know is always on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And before we get into the disclaimer, you always know that I like to mention the social media pages at TBOTBpod and the website TBOTBpod.com. Both the website and the social media pages are to be used in a way that you can interact with the show on a different platform. Maybe find some contact information about the guest, even just putting a face with the voice that you're hearing. And now, everyone, please remember that the discussions on this podcast are for informational purposes only. I cannot predict and do not guarantee that you will attain a particular result from the information provided. You should always seek professional assistance before making decisions in connection with the topics discussed. And now that I finally have all that intro stuff out of the way, we have a very special show, a very special guest lined up for everyone. So make sure you're focused, you have the volume up where you can hear it clearly because this episode has a lot of weight to it. So let's jump right into this one. On today's episode of the best of the best, we have a fellow DBP gang member, Brian Alzate. If you don't know what DBP is, DB Podcasts are the producers of the show. But getting back to my guest, Brian, he is the CEO and co-founder of United Recovery Project, which is a business that helps those struggling with addiction. And he also hosts his own fantastic podcast called Hell Has an Exit. Brian, brother, we've been trying to link up. I'm happy you're yeah, finally here. Good living to meet life. you in person. Yeah, he pulled up in a dope new truck. So was, <laughs> I saw someone sitting out there. I'm like, that's got to be him. But how are you? I'm good, bro. I'm uh, excited to be here, bro. It's really cool to be on the show. I've listened to uh, probably like five or six episodes of you guys. Nice. So um, it's cool to be here. It's been raining a lot this week. So the truck is definitely helping out. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, I appreciate the listen. Before we go into the topic of helping people, I always like to get some background mm-hmm. about you so the listeners can get to know the guests a little bit better. So where did you grow up, Brian? I'm born and raised in Davie. You know, I grew up like in Cooper City, which is like right next to Davie, which is basically 30 minutes from Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. 
Davy is where Nova is, my law school. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll be driving, making that commute every day. To yeah, Davey. my. Oh, so you're going to law school? Yeah, going oh, that's to law cool. school. Awesome. Yeah, starting in August. I wanted to go to law school at one point. <laughs> I like studying to take the LSAT. You could still do it. There you go. Maybe. You could still do it. Who did you look up to when you were a kid? Uh, like Tony Hawk and like uh, some like street skaters or whatever. But uh, I'm trying to think. Eminem. I was like a huge Eminem fan as a kid. Yeah, he's dope. Detroit legend right there. Mm -hmm. And what about when you were little? What did you think you were going to do for a living when you were older? When you were an adult? Uh, what did little Brian's be like? That's going to be me. Honestly, bro, when I was really little, I remember like my dad asked me what I want to be and I said an entrepreneur. And I didn't know how like I knew that name, but I remember saying like I want to be an entrepreneur and my dad was like, yeah, but what does that mean? I'm like, I just want to be an entrepreneur. He's like, of what? I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. But uh, I used to read a lot of um, Mario Puzo. I've read like all the Godfathers and the Sicilian, all these other books. And I saw how like, you know, the Godfather had like money coming in 18 different ways. Yeah. You know? And I remember just thinking like, oh, it's such a boss thing. Like, yeah. I was really into like true crime novels and like, you know, movies like Paid in Full and Belly, yeah. you know. Paid in Full, great movie. Yeah. Great movie. But now let's go into the meat of the conversation. I always call it the nitty gritty on the show. And to start things off, before we do anything, I want to give you the floor, mm -hmm. as I call it, for a little bit, just to explain your business and what you do and how it works for those that may not understand mm -hmm. fully what it is that you do and what you own. So I own a, it's considered like a luxury high-end drug and alcohol rehabilitation center. We have all levels of care from detox, residential, down to intensive outpatient. So usually if you're struggling with substance abuse, you're going to go to a state-funded place. Some people don't even know that they can go to a drug rehab on their insurance. Like when I was on drugs, I thought rehab was for like Lindsay Lohan and Britney Spears. I didn't think regular people went to rehab. I never like was on the streets using drugs and someone was like, hey, I just got a rehab. Like nobody was going to rehab. People were like, going to jail and then they would come out of jail and like get high or they were trying to wean off themselves. And when you're addicted to opiates, weaning off yourself is like a joke. I've never till this day met anybody that I used with that said, yeah, I got clean by weaning off myself. So as a drug addict, I kind of felt totally doomed. Like, well, this is just my life because I'm not Britney Spears and I can't go to rehab. So I couldn't go to rehab on my insurance because I was an adolescent and my insurance didn't cover adolescent drug substance abuse but nowadays a lot of insurances do recognize substance abuse as a mental illness as any other disease no different if you had cancer or something and your insurance may pay for you to go to a drug rehab now you know if you had childhood cancer you'd go to sloan kettering which is in new york so that's like the best cancer foundation hospital for kids with cancer like everyone who has cancer that's a young kid knows to go to this place so florida has kind of become like that in a sense of drug rehabs where we are the mecca of drug and alcohol rehabilitation so we have more drug rehabs in florida than the whole nation combined wow so if you're in ohio it makes a lot of sense because one most people's problems like 50 percent of it is their environment so people are able to leave their environment fly to florida some of them go right back and start a new life and then some of them make a new life here a lot of people choose to go to florida and then end up staying here because they love the recovery community 
which the is weather. different. The weather, <laughs> yeah. yeah, the weather. Yeah, yeah, you got people from Detroit on heroin and they come down here. They're like, I'm never leaving, you yeah. know? And the recovery community down here is just so different. Like, there's recovery in every state, but you can go to a meeting in Florida seven days a week, 365, 10 different times a day. So there's probably like 300 meetings in Broward County just for one fellowship. And there's a lot of young people. So when you're young and you live in like another state, you might go to a 12-step meeting and only see people that are like in their 50s or 60s. You know, we're down here. You'll go to a meeting and see 20, 20-year-olds 20 with multiple years clean. Wow. wow. So that's basically in a nutshell what we do. I would say 90% yeah. of people that come in for treatment come in from out of state. And uh, they stay anywhere from two weeks to 90 days. And then we transition them into, you know, sober livings. They get jobs and they reenter society and hopefully stay clean. Yeah, that's amazing, bro. That is really amazing. And before we go really deep into it, now that people understand who you are and what you do, I want to say a few things because this show has always been about the shit that's not taught in school. Mm -hmm. And this subject, mainly addiction and seeking help, is not taught enough or even at all in any level 1, of education. And having gone to a quote-unquote party school for college, a.k.a. Michigan State, I have seen people firsthand, you know, not like my close friends, but people that I know struggle with addiction, whether they, they realize it or not. From my perspective, I would classify it as an addiction mm -hmm. to how I saw their lifestyle. And with all that being said, there's so many tragic stories of kids passing away from overdosing, which doesn't necessarily have to go hand in hand with addiction. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, it's still a tragedy when that happens. And yeah, it's not just that. It's at such an alarming rate that 60,000 people a year are dying of overdoses. 60,000 is more than car accidents. So you got to imagine that so many young kids are dying from overdoses at this point in time. That is the first time in history that the newer generation has a less lifetime on earth. So normally every year people are living longer and longer. Yeah. Due to overdoses, this is the first time in history that the generation before this generation is going to outlive us because so many young kids are dying at a young age, it's actually changing the number. Wow. That's horrible. That's horrible. And I don't know why. It's like one of those things, right? Like when you go to a college town, you know people are doing drugs. Everyone knows people are doing drugs, but no one's talking about it. Mm -hmm. And there's no specific class. Like they're, I mean, sure, they have like these, I'll call them bullshit, little things about drinking and drugs and like rape, which mm -hmm. I don't want to classify that stuff as bullshit. But I think the programs that they make you go through, they're bullshit in the way where people aren't paying attention. They're there because they have to be there. And because, in my opinion, they're educating in a way that isn't piquing people's interest to make them stay focused. Well, obviously, it's not working. Yeah. So whenever you try something, you have to see if it's working. It's like, hey, did this drug class change the drug amount of usage in the last five, yeah. 10 years? No. So it's like the D.A.R.E. program didn't work. These other educations or health class in middle school is not working. More people are struggling with substance abuse and mental health, which are the same thing. Yeah. You know, no one has. People always ask me like, oh, are you guys dual diagnosis? Yes, we are a dual diagnosis facility. The emphasis is on drug abuse. But there isn't a person on the planet 
that suffers from drug addiction and does not suffer from another thing. Yeah. Because why would you use drugs if you were totally okay? Yeah, something's triggering that. Yeah. 100%. Well, listen, maybe this is another business move for you mm-hmm. to help people maybe teaming up with colleges to have this education course taught in a way that, you know, is relatable and yeah. people can understand. And, uh, you know, one of my goals for the podcast that I have, you know, Hell Has an Exit, is to bring awareness to people and show them real life stories, not Joe Schmo that's never done drugs in his life who comes yeah. and tells you that if you do drugs, you're going to die and that, like, you know, drugs are bad, okay? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's kind of yeah. like what drugs education was like as a kid was that if you do drugs, you're stupid. It's not going to be good, which is like a no-brainer. Most kids know that. Of course. But no one's really taught mental health and what to do if you're cutting, what to do if you're depressed, what to do if you're like, imagine you're a young kid and your dad drinks every day and you have no idea what alcoholism is. You think that's normal. Yeah. So the awareness that happens from education is the only thing that's going to change people from identifying behaviors that are already going on in their life. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, I when I listen to some of the stories on your podcast, I feel very blessed that I've never had to face those challenges Mm -hmm. and or hardships of when someone close to me is struggling with addiction. So I'll be learning a lot myself from this episode and our conversation because it has a lot of depth to it. It has a lot of weight to it. And it's important, right? I Sure, I always say like taxes, mortgages, insurance, all that shit isn't taught in school, but is essential in life. This is another one of those that like is sort of brushed under the rug, in my opinion, because like you said, it's like if you do this, like you're bad, but no one's ever talking about like, okay, how can we stop this from happening? How can we focus on like being proactive instead of reactive, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that's always something that's important. But- and understanding that there's a solution. So it's like, yeah. I feel like in school they would teach us about depression, but no one would really say what to do if you're depressed. Like I don't remember hearing exactly. anything what to do. And for a lot of people with depression, I would say 50% of those people should start talking to a doctor about medication. I think medication is a great help. But at the same time, if you're not changing your behaviors, it's not going to change either. And I'd like to like normalize going to therapy. So a lot of people think like therapy is only for someone who's had like a traumatic experience, a death in the family, you know, someone in 9-11, someone who's a veteran. But going to therapy before those issues happen is a good way to clear your self-talk. It's a good way to clear the way you view society, the way you view your childhood, your relationship with your families. So it's like someone comes in and organizes these things and say, look, this is something that you're worrying about that when we talk about it out loud, it's really not really a big deal. And then these things you're not responsible for. In this situation, you were a victim and that person harmed you and you should not feel guilty or shame about it. So they're organizing things, whereas when you do it on your own, you kind of just close the door and don't look at it. Makes sense, but it's messed up, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's messed up that it's not normalized, that it's okay to go talk to someone about how you're feeling, even if you're not feeling bad, even if you're feeling happy, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's just good to talk. Like I'm a a talker. I don't ever hold, my girlfriend knows this more than anyone. Like I don't really hold my feelings in Mm -hmm. a lot. I often speak them out loud. And there's like a weird thing too, where it's like, I've never looked into the research, but it's like there's got to be some chemical reaction. And maybe you know more than I do that when you do speak about your feelings and that does come out of your body and you vocalize mm-hmm. it, it's sort of like a comforting feeling to the well, human called, body. It's called connection. It's called oxytocin. So like when you connect with someone, you release oxytocin. You know, you have dopamine, you have endorphins and you have oxytocin. So that connection, that feeling is oxytocin. The reason why you are OK with talking to people is because I can tell from your childhood that that was encouraged 
that your parents probably looked at you and valued your opinion. So when you spoke as a kid and said something, your dad like really said, wow, Maverick, that makes a lot of sense. As opposed to someone else who grew up in a household where Interesting. when you talk, someone yeah. says, shut the fuck up. Someone yeah. says, that's stupid. You're an idiot. You know, there's people who refuse to talk in public because in second grade, they stood up to do a presentation and someone said, that was dumb or you sound stupid. So now they have this trauma that they don't want to talk in public anymore. That follows them. What's crazy is that you could be a 40-year-old adult, not know this, and five sessions with a the therapist can fix this. I have a, uh, this lady in the gym, and she was telling me her daughter's super successful, and she was telling me her daughter doesn't drive. And I was like, what? She's like, no, she got into a car accident like seven years ago. She doesn't drive. And I was like, has she seen therapy for this? And she was like, no. And I'm like, she could probably start driving by just going to a couple therapy for sessions. Sure. Like, here's this woman. She's an adult now who doesn't drive because For of sure. one traumatic event that's hindering them. And this is something that's very obvious to see, but what about people who have these types of trauma that people don't know how traumatic it is because it goes under the radar, but yeah. it could be affecting your relationships, how you interact with your friends, your employees, your employer, whatever. Your whole life. Yeah. Well, Brian, what do you classify as addiction? You know, to break it down, at what point mm -hmm. do you classify someone as being addicted as the CEO of one yeah. of the best of the best recovery so, programs. One, I'm a firm believer that there's a huge difference between addiction and drug abuse. So somebody can be abusing drugs and rehab and uh, therapy will help them a lot. There are some people that if they just got out of their environment, they'd be totally okay. There are some people if they stop doing drugs, their life would just increasingly get better just from not using. That is what I consider someone who is a drug abuser. Interesting. Someone who is an addict, they might not even use drugs as hardcore as the drug abuser, but what they struggle from is so deep-rooted into the way that they think that even if you took drugs off the planet, they would continuously self-sabotage their relationships, end up in jail, feel empty, not feel uh, any self-worth. So the issue isn't the drugs with the drug addict, a okay. real addict. Yeah. The issue is that they have this obsessive, compulsive, negative self-talk and spiritual hole, you know, where these people are really looking for something. And I've interviewed and talked to thousands of addicts. I would say the commonality is that they all feel like they don't fit in. They feel like life just feels meaningless. And many of you have that aren't addicts have had a, like you ever had a feeling where you just want to do something, but you don't know what you want to do. Like you just want to spend money on stock X. Yeah. You just want to like <laughs> yeah, buy something stupid. You ever go to the mall and not need anything, but you just need to buy something yeah. like, what is it? That's called like fill in the void. Well, with drug addicts, they have that feeling every single day of their life, every single day of their life. They have this emptiness that is like always there and they need to do something. And when they buy clothes, it doesn't get better. When they get into a relationship, it doesn't get better. But then they find drugs and they find like this euphoric feeling of everything's better and they get addicted to that. And then even without the drugs, they still have this emptiness that's even bigger because they know something that used to fix it. And I truly believe the only way to overcome this is through the 12 steps, a higher power, whether it's Jesus, whether it's Buddhism or spirituality in any yeah. capacity. But yeah. it has to be some type of spiritual thing that helps them. And then it needs to be consistent over time. I believe that addiction hijacks their normal living skills. So like most people want food, shelter, water, love, and connection, like those simple things. Yeah. When you become an addict, you no longer need 
shelter, you no longer care about food, you no longer need connection with your family, you no longer crave these things. So people throw the word addiction around with like food. Oh, I'm a food addict. I'm addicted to shopping. Yeah. But you're just shopping a lot. Yeah. You know, like, you know, unless you're not eating, losing your house and destroying your family, I wouldn't call it an addiction. For sure. So sometimes people say the word addiction really loosely. And to me, the word addiction is never to be taken lightly. For so sure. people ask me like, oh, aren't you addicted to the 12 steps now? No, I'm not. I don't like crave and fiend the tw going to a yeah. meeting like i have a passion for the 12 steps and i have a passion for helping people i'm not addicted to the 12 steps i'm not addicted to meeting so do you think the biggest difference maker then between the drug abusers and those that are addicted is that compulsive mindset that like what you said they don't really fit in you know they're looking to fill this void mm -hmm. is that what you say is the biggest difference maker i would maker? say that it's three things so one is like the physical dependency is like one aspect of it. The second part would be like the insanity where they don't learn from negative okay. consequences. Okay. So a drug abuser will eventually stop the behavior once they get enough negative consequences. Drug addicts don't learn from negative consequences. They can go to jail and they keep using. They can lose their left arm, they start shooting up in their right arm. They don't have this thing, like most animals, if you give them a negative consequence, they'll stop the behavior. Drug addicts do not. Real addicts do not learn from negative behavior. The third part of it is the spiritual emptiness and that connection that they crave, yeah. which they get through the 12 steps and meeting other addicts. And now when they meet other addicts and they connect with other addicts, they're no longer feeling alone. Gotcha. So if someone is listening to this right now and in the back of their mm -hmm. head, they know they have an addiction problem with the substance, mm -hmm. what would be the first thing you would recommend them to do? <sighs> it depends how bad they are. So it's like if you are hardcore addicted to opiates and alcohol and like if you don't have drugs in your system within like eight hours you're going to start like throwing up or something you might want to just like call the hospital call the back of your insurance card and try to get help get on the internet try to get into a detox if you're not that physically bad where you can like make it to a 12-step meeting i would at least try to go to a 12-step meeting and just try to hear what they're saying but the first step is really finding help and letting your family know that you want help. Because a lot of people are like, oh, my family doesn't talk to me. You'll be surprised what your family does and is willing to come up with when you're really ready for help. Yeah, so on the flip side of that, if someone is listening to this right now and they know that someone close to them mm -hmm. is struggling with an addiction problem, what should they do if they want to help that person? So this is like the game plan. So like I tell everybody, people call, hey, my brother's on drugs. What do I do? All right, so how long have you talked to your brother for? Where is he? What drugs is he doing? You got to get as much information as possible, find out who's he's close to, and you got to find some type of leverage. So to get that person to go to rehab, most drug addicts don't want to go to rehab or they would be in rehab, you know? So this is probably someone who is in denial, very hard to talk to, doesn't want anything to do with the family, especially doesn't want to talk about getting help. So you have to find some type of leverage. If they live in your house, you're lucky because you can instantly say, hey, if you don't go to rehab, you can't live here anymore. That works like 99% of the time. Most parents, like when I tell them that, they're like, well, they get scared of like kicking their kid out. But it's like, why would your kid go to rehab if he has a place to live and some money and can get high? Yeah. Like he has no he has everything. Exactly. You need to take something away from them for them to start moving. So let's say he lives in another state and you don't really talk to him and he doesn't live at home or she doesn't live at home. 
what you can do is get the whole family together, try to meet with him in person. Everyone reads a little piece of paper that they wrote about how this addiction is affecting them. And I believe even the worst drug addict has some type of feelings deep down inside. They pretend like they don't have feelings. They pretend like they're sociopaths. But deep down, every single drug addict has a little boy or girl inside that's crying for help. 100% I've met thousands of addicts. I believe that wholeheartedly. So you want to connect with that person inside that's trapped. Yeah. So when someone's on drugs, they're really a prisoner. So you want to talk to the prisoner and say, look, the drugs are destroying your life. You're destroying the family. We have an option for you. So before you meet with them, you have to have a game plan of this place has approved them to go to treatment. This is a shelter they can go to. This is a detox they can go to. And you want to create urgency. So you do the intervention. You create urgency. You have to go right now. Because what they're going to say is, oh, I'll think about it. I'll talk about it tomorrow. And then they're just going to leave and you'll never see them again. So you have to create an urgency. It's like, you're not going to say goodbye to anybody. You're not going to go like putting your two weeks at your job. You're not like, you have to say, you have to go right right now. And that's the hardest part because a lot of times they'll say, okay, okay, just to get you away from them. And then you'll never hear from them again. So hopefully that turns into a successful intervention where they get on the plane, they check into the rehab, they do what they can. And then sometimes that might not work, but you keep doing it. And then if they truly are against treatment, you say, all right, well, we're not going to talk to you anymore. Mom's not sending you $20 anymore. Dad's not coming to pick you up when you get arrested. We're cutting you off until you're ready to get help. Yeah. That's really what it takes. That's tough love. If someone does say, okay, whether they decide by themselves or whether their family, you know, they actually hear what their family's saying and it's not going in one ear and out the other, mm-hmm. what is the hardest part of the recovery process for a person? So the hardest part is the consistency. Because when uh, someone has back pain, they start going to the chiropractor. The chiropractor is going to say, you should swim, you should stretch. When the back pain goes away, you stop going to the chiropractor, you stop stretching, you stop swimming because the pain's gone. Yeah. So the hard part is to stay consistent when you're no longer motivated by pain. Happens every time. People go to treatment, they're in so much pain, they're willing to do anything. You'll say, bro, you need to jump a thousand jumping jacks. They're jumping a thousand jumping jacks. You tell them to jump into a pool of alligators, they'll jump into a pool of alligators. Like, when addicts are really desperate, they're willing to do whatever. Okay. Then life gets good. The family starts trusting you again. You start looking better. You get a couple of haircuts. Now you have a little girlfriend. Now you no longer want to do the work. And the work is having a sponsor, going to your therapy session. What does having a sponsor mean? So in the 12 steps, you have someone that sponsors you. It's like a personal trainer that you don't pay. So they're going to motivate you, give you tasks, give you assignments. Uh, you're going to call them on a daily basis and check in with them and they're basically going to hold you accountable like we're talking about before the show so your sponsor is going to hold you accountable they're going to give you assignments and then you're going to go over those assignments with your sponsor and that's going through the 12 steps gotcha so most people what they do is that they get the sponsor they go to the meetings they never really get really involved and then after a couple months they don't really call this guy they don't really make the coffee they don't chair the meeting they don't get any commitments and then they get a girlfriend and now they don't need to go to meetings anymore or they get a job and now they don't got to go to meetings. So the hardest part about recovery is to stay just as motivated as you were as day one as you are on day 1000. And it's the same thing with the gym. The gym yeah, is the same thing. Yeah, you're right. January 1st, 
new gym clothes. Yeah. You, you got the gym shoes. You yeah. bought headphones. You're ready to go to the gym. And then two weeks later, it's pizza day you at start, the office. Yeah, you start weaning down. You know, on it. you have a couple slices of pizza. You know, so it's I really believe recovery is a level of fitness, and you don't have to be in peak physical shape all year round, but you have to remain consistent, and you need to stay close to the middle so you don't fall off the edge. That makes sense, and I appreciate you bringing in the analogy of going to the gym because I think that helps. I mean, that helped me understand mm-hmm. it a little bit from someone that doesn't really see too much of this or understand because too much of it. Because a lot of times it. people say, oh, I went to rehab. It didn't work. I got high the day I got out. That would be like saying LA Fitness doesn't work. Yeah. That would be like, bro, I signed up to LA Fitness, and then I just that got shit fat. doesn't okay. work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No one's saying the gym doesn't yeah. work, okay? Yeah. But people go around and say rehab doesn't work. Bro, it's up to you. Yeah. Oh, 99 people went to rehab. Only two of them stayed clean. How many people sign up to the gym and really commit to fitness? This is a way of life. If you are trying to lose 100 pounds and all your friends eat pizza and Dunkin' Donuts and, you know, whatever, like you're going to have to change your friends or to say, hey, look, I'm not coming to the pizza party Yeah. because I know I'm going to eat pizza. So it's very similar with drug addiction times a thousand. The environment that the if people you you're surrounding yourself with. it's hard to lose with. 50 pounds, try getting off heroin. It's a whole 24-7 job for the rest of your life. You know, so a lot of times when I make the analogy about working out, people are like, yeah, because you and I both know people who go to the gym all year round, don't lose a pound. Yeah. You and I know people that every year they're going to lose 50 pounds. They never lose a pound. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, for sure. But then we look at drug addicts on the corner and we say, man, one of these losers is going to get it together. We look at drug addicts and we say, man, look at this lazy, weak person. You know, we have our own family members say, oh, what are you, just weak? Mind you, the guy talking to me is 100 pounds overweight. You know what I mean? He can't say no to pizza and donuts, but he's telling me that it's so easy to get off heroin or crack. Yeah, that's that misunderstanding and then not truly getting it of what a person's feeling and also being close-minded to not want to And it's a lack of empathy. That. You yeah. know, it's like, bro, if you haven't lived it, if you haven't been there, you really can't talk to me because you have a lot of people that run and operate treatment centers that are like fat personal trainers. You know, if you're not in shape, how are you going to tell me to get in shape? That's I mean, been the number one thing. Whenever I start a new trainer, your body yeah, you gotta is be, your resume. You got to be jacked, bro. Your body you can't is, be yeah. like some skinny scrawny dude you no know, you gotta be jacked i've never understood people that like oh yeah like i have a trainer and like i'll see them in the gym their trainer's fucking like 25 pounds overweight yeah. you know and i'm like all right that's an interesting trainer let's see mm-hmm. those results now you know 1000 percent. and it's like bro uh a trainer's physique says it all like yeah. this guy obviously knows what he's doing yeah so you know i would say 95 percent of my staff are all recovering addicts themselves that's you amazing. know so the guy who mops the floor to the person who picks you up at the airport to your therapist, 95% of my staff are all in recovery themselves. And um, that's probably what makes the big difference, you know, For because sure. you can go to a fancy schmancy treatment center, but the customer service and the love that you get when you get there is what's going to make the difference. Yeah. You know, when you have low level employees that don't care about their job, you're going to feel like you're at the DMV. You know why the DMV sucks? Because the staff is underpaid. <laughs> yeah, because they're always bitching. They're just fucking bitching, yeah, bro. The people always. at the DMV do not give a fuck about you. You no. are a number. They don't care. You know why? Because they're not paid a lot of money, and it's a stressful job, and people are difficult to deal with. When you go to a county-run, crappy treatment center, it's the same experience, bro. People are underpaid. They're overworked. 
They have so much paperwork to get done. They're dealing with the worst clients on the planet. You know, you think people at DMV are difficult to deal with? Imagine dealing with people coming off drugs. Yeah, no, you know, for sure. They can be difficult. For sure. Let's pivot. Since we're talking about crappy centers, let's fucking pivot and talk <laughs> about the best of the best ones. Sure, sure. United Recovery. And if someone's coming there, do they stay overnight? Do they stay for the day, an extended amount of time? Yeah, so, are there different options? Break that down. So uh, basically, if you're struggling, we highly recommend that you go into an inpatient, which is detox and residential. You're going to stay there, live there, sleep there, everything, food's catered in uh, 7 to 14 days. That will get you through, like, the medical aspect. So if you're scared about, like, withdrawals, which suck, you know, we're going to make it as comfortable as possible. You know, it's super high end. It's nice. You'll have groups still. And then you'll go down to what we call PHP, which is partial hospitalization programming. We have community housing where you live in, like, an upscale, nice mansion, and then we transport you Monday through Saturday to groups. So imagine it like summer camp where you'll sleep at a house and then you'll get transported Monday through Saturday for groups. Yeah. You'll have groups for four or five hours a day. You'll have a lunch. You'll have a 15-minute smoke break or just a break in general. And then you'll talk to your therapist at least once a week. So you have an individual once a week. You'll work with your case management because a lot of people come in that have jobs and they're scared of losing their job. FMLA protects people from taking a medical leave without losing their job. So you don't have to tell your job, hey, I'm on heroin, can you please not fire me? All you have to say is, hey, I'm checking into a medical facility, they're gonna send you my paperwork, this is my FMLA paperwork, and I'll be back in 30 days. And your job has to honor that. Wow. You know, It's something that most Americans don't know, that they have an ability to tell their job that they have a medical issue that they don't have to disclose and they're going to go take care of it and we're the medical company and you know we yeah. have to protect so you, you know, help right. put that all in place for them 1000 so percent because that's people's biggest worry is like bro i don't want to lose my job i can't check into rehab for 30 days you know yeah. which is like a lot of people's excuse is like oh no i can't go to rehab but it's like bro if you overdose and die tomorrow what good is your job going to be exactly you know Exactly. So what about the cost? Something I've always wondered about and we talked a little mm -hmm. bit about is the cost. Is it covered by insurance? Is so it all would, out of pocket? So it depends. So just because you have good insurance doesn't necessarily mean you have good insurance for substance abuse okay. because everyone's benefits are so different. Yeah. So some people tell me all the time, oh, I have the best insurance in the world. And then we go to run it. And then the insurance company was like, yeah, we don't really pay for substance abuse. So having substance abuse benefits on your policy really depends on the people that happen to write that policy. So I would say 50, 60% of people who have health insurance have the ability to go to out-of-network facility. So if you're out-of-network, you're probably going to be a lot more high-end than an in-network facility, yeah. which is more costly. So normally when you get your health insurance, they give you three options. Hey, you want the $400 a month plan, the $500 a month plan, or the $600 a month plan. To go to a luxury facility like ours, you're probably going to have one of the top-tier plans but that doesn't mean that you can't additionally add funds, pay cash. Because sometimes we have people who have regular insurance and they're like, look, I'll give you cash on top of my insurance and we'll take that. But we also have people that work at Walmart that have phenomenal insurance. We have people that work at Coca-Cola that have phenomenal insurance. So you don't have to be like the CEO of a hedge fund to go to a nice treatment center either. You Got know? it. That's good for people to know. So I would say the cash price for most people for 30 days is anywhere from like 15 to 25 grand depending on how much detox or res you're going to need 
if you're an alcoholic, you might need a 20 days of residential. You might need 10 days of residential because alcohol has some of the worst withdrawal symptoms. Wow, that's crazy. Can you finance the cost? Yeah, so that's another thing is that we work with finance companies that are you know lenders that get people loans to go to drug and alcohol rehab. Also at URP, what we do is that if you cash pay, we'll always try to help you if you relapse again. So like, God forbid you relapse a second time, we're not going to just charge you another 20 grand. You know what I mean? We're definitely going to take that into consideration. Yeah. Sometimes we'll scholarship have to stay. Sometimes we'll work with the family. So it really depends. That's amazing, bro. Do you have one location or are there multiple? So we have a location in West Palm and we have a location in Hollywood, Florida. And we're currently setting to open 41 beds in California. Oh, wow. That's really dope. Good for you. Yeah, in total, we are 100 beds right now. That's amazing. So amazing. Well, listen, everyone, like I said before, Brian has a podcast, Hell Has an Exit, and he is currently in the process of telling his own story in four separate parts, if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken. By the time you all hear this episode, he will be on part three. But obviously, you have a tremendous life story, you know, from being someone that was an addict to now helping people recover, which is just, like I said, I'll say it again, truly tremendous and amazing and shows the type of leader, the type of person you are. I want to ask your advice about a few things that, you know, this is sort of going back and to the whole college conversation. But first, I want to talk about your advice for the youngins. A lot of people that listen to the show are of the younger age and may not have experienced situations in life that has exposed them to being around people doing drugs or being around people that are asking them, hey, do you want to do these drugs in a college setting or even a post-college setting? So what would your advice be for those people that are listening right now that, you know, are about to go into college and are going to get put into this new environment where there will be drugs around? How should they handle that? So the first thing I try to like explain to someone who's asking questions like this is uh, beware of pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceuticals are hardcore drugs. So growing up, I thought hardcore drugs was like heroin and crack. I didn't think Xanax was a hardcore drug. It's a pill. It's legal. And it comes from a doctor. How bad could it be? I didn't think Adderall was like a big deal. We're seeing so many people come in that started off with Adderall. Yeah. I would say 99.9% .9 of opiate addicts started from pharmaceuticals. No one wakes up and does heroin anymore. This isn't the 1970s where the veterans are coming back from war with needles in their arms because they were in Cambodia or like uh, Vietnam or something. You yeah. know? So it's like, how are people finding heroin it's because they're starting with painkillers so what i try to tell people is like hey you might be at a party and some kid is popping adderall and he doesn't seem like a big deal one like i'm pretty sure it's a felony to be doing pills that are not prescribed to you or selling pills that aren't prescribed to you it's a big charge so it's pretty illegal bro especially coming from the epidemic of oxycodone and roxies they've really cracked down on doctor shopping people selling their scripts so in college, that's what most kids are going to see first. They're not going to walk into a college party and see a crack pipe. No, You're going to walk into not. a college party and everyone's going to be on Adderall and sharing Adderall. Some people might even crush it up and snort it. But you're going to run into pharmaceuticals before you start running into hardcore drugs. For sure. But if you're addicted to Adderall at 20, what do you think you're going to be doing at 25? You might be doing at least coke and probably finding crack. Yeah. You know? So my biggest fuck up as a kid was like, I thought that if I just stayed in this small area, I wouldn't like 
see how bad it could get. So like, I thought if I was just selling weed, like what's so bad about selling weed? Well, if you sell enough weed, you run into somebody who asks for Coke. And then now you're like, well, I don't know. And now you start asking people for Coke. And then before you know it, you're selling Coke, you know? So it's like, it all leads to the next step and the next thing and the yeah. next one. And it's pretty naive and arrogant to think, oh, I'm only going to stick to this and not, it's not going to become something else, you know? And a lot of times people don't try drugs thinking that they're going to continuously do this all the time. Absolutely. And I think that's a huge factor that I've seen firsthand. I'll be perfectly honest. I've never done any of that shit. Never. And it's, you know, for a few different reasons, but I think mainly is like people don't know what the outcome is going to be afterwards. Right. It's like, number one, I don't have an interest in doing that. But number two, it's like what you said, like you don't know what's going to happen. What's going to happen after is your body going to start craving that type of feeling again. So all these different things go through my head, but I see, saw that firsthand in college all the time. People are taking drugs. Oh, I'm not addicted. You know, like I, I can stop this it. right now. Yeah. yeah I, I just want to see what this feels like. Uh -huh. I just want to know what that feeling is that he's talking about or she's talking about. Like, look at them, you know? So the best thing is to not even try it and kind of avoid those people. Because honestly, yep. I don't care what anyone says, bro. If you're doing drugs and snorting pills and cutting class or whatever, like those habits are going to be with that person for a yeah. long time. They're not just going to easily break those habits. Yeah. So those people are going to be negative, conniving, thieves. They develop a lot of social bad habits that are going to transcend into the rest of their life. So it's like, who do you want to hang out with? You want to hang out with, you know, what I used to think were like geeky kids. You know what yeah. I mean? Like you want to hang out with someone that's like, bro, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't want to do any of that stuff. I want to be successful. I want to help people, you know, someone yeah. who's positive. And like, honestly, bro, like most people do drugs aren't really that positive and they're just trying to out to get you, you know? Yeah. You know, what's crazy that you say that is, so I went to this party school that all of my friends pretty much went out and I was never one to go out or to go to the bar. Like, I think I, I probably could count on both of my hands the amount of times I went out in college. And like two of the times it was like, I threw the party mm -hmm. because like, I was just like, all right, let's do it. Let's run it up. You know? So it's like. There's a certain stigma in college that, number one, like, oh, go out, party, drink, do drugs. You know, Adderall is a huge one that you brought up that people are doing Adderall while they're drinking and whether they're snorting it, whether they're taking it, Coke, it leads to that, that same type of thing that you're saying. It just all leads down, you know, one big snowball effect of like, this is going to lead into the next thing and just get bigger and bigger. But it's so crazy that we're not talking about this like at school, mm -hmm. right? We're not talking about going to class and and in class it's like okay what have you guys been doing you know can we have a conversation about this like i've had deep conversations in my class rooms mm -hmm. with my professors in it about all their life shit that in my opinion is as equally as important as talking about this shit because you know that you could look around in the room and there's five kids that within the past week were either doing coke taking adderall mm -hmm. you know taking xanax is another huge one so it blows my mind and it makes me feel sad that there's not more education and which is, I know is the goal of your podcast is to educate. And I hope this episode will also educate those people to be weary and to like, I saw your Instagram post, you know, you used to look at those geeky kids and be like those fucking losers. Mm -hmm. well, what are they doing? Right. And I was always the kid that was like not going out, working on trying to start businesses, like trying to find different ways to set myself up for success. I've always said, in my college years, my four years at college, why would I not be working as hard as I can right then and there while I'm young rather than going out and partying and then wasting four years? And now, okay, now is the time to start going hard in life. 
Yeah. So like my whole thing is that like, you know, I did drugs at a really young age, but I also got clean at a young age. I got clean at 17. So like I didn't care about partying. When I was 21, I didn't drink. I haven't had a sip of alcohol since 17. So even though I've done all the drugs in the world, I also had to grow up and I didn't have the opportunity to party. I didn't think partying was cool. I had already smoked crack at 14 years old, you know? So like I had skipped that stage of my life. Wow. So a lot of times it's like, I had to make up for lost time and I wasn't trying to go backwards and play beer pong at like a college. You know what I mean? Like I was like 17 and I was like, I need to like figure out why I'm fucked up. And I started reading and I went to meetings and I started helping people. And you know what? Like when I was five years clean, I started to get interested in business. And what I realized that even though I am a drug addict, I have an insane work ethic. So I would tell people that if you're in college and you want to be successful, you need to surround yourself with people who have insane work ethic. I don't understand how people go on a vacation seven times a year. Like that blows my mind. Like I'm just now starting to like kind of live my life and like go on vacation and stuff. But like from like five years clean to like 11 years clean, I was working 24, seven, 365 on a business, on who I am as a person. Yeah. I've read hundreds of books like on self-care and self-help and like, you know, just basic things that I didn't learn as a kid because I was on drugs. Yeah. So it's like now I've used that same obsessive and compulsive thing to better myself, to work on myself, to, you know, accomplish new goals. I got really into running last year, you know. Yeah, this guy's running fucking crazy. Yeah. I was going to go meet up with him one time. He ran like 20 miles. I was going out by like the second mile. Yeah, bro. So it's like, you know, I've used a lot of my, like, you know, people were joking about this at dinner last night. Like one of the interview questions that people are getting asked on job interviews are, what did you do during COVID? Did you learn a new skill or something? Right. And people at dinner were joking, like, I didn't learn a new skill. All I learned was that, like, I love to, like, watch Netflix and stay at home all day. Shit's garb. Like, yeah, like, bro, for me, like, during COVID, I got in sick shape. I started running. Like, the gyms were closed. I was working outside. I I started reading a lot. I was the best shape of my life during COVID, you know? I was worrying, like, bro, if my business doesn't work out, what am I going to do? Like, I was really thinking about survival of the fittest, you know? And people were freaking out during COVID. Like drug addicts weren't freaking out because we live in this state of emergency all the time. You know what I mean? So it's like a lot of times when people are freaking out or get into fistfights over gas and toilet paper, that's just how drug addicts live daily. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're 100% right. I've talked about it on the show before. If you didn't do something, I don't know if I want, I don't want to say successful. <laughs> I don't even want to say productive because it doesn't necessarily, I guess we can use the word productive. If you didn't make the best of your COVID, yeah, like, that's a reflection of your life. There will never be another time, I pray, please, that we will be locked inside our house for two, three months at a single time, like not going out, not going to the store. If you have two to three months, that's how I started this podcast during COVID. Mm-hmm. I was yeah. like, what the yeah, hell? You know, like, at the same time. Want, yeah, wanted to do this. You know, I was, just, I was literally 15 pounds heavier than I am yeah. right now during COVID because like my girlfriend was cooking, shout out to her for making me amazing meals, but she was cooking for me. You know, I was working out like two hours a day, two and a half hours a day where like I would have never had that time prior to COVID. But don't get me wrong. Like I'll always be transparent. I was fucking watching Netflix. There was times where I was eating six brownies before I go to bed. I was staying up till four in the morning. But at the end of the day, like I was always trying to figure out new business models mm-hmm. like you were. You know, we have that in common for sure. The only thing I will disagree about with you is just vacations. I think depending 
on the type of person you are, they're essential to unwind. Mm -hmm. And I would recommend everyone. I just got back from a vacation where I had no cell service for a few days. And that is always, my family tries to do that vacation once a year. I would agree with like self-care, but I just think people think they need more of it than they do. So I I agree, but I do believe that for me, I wanted to push my body to its absolute limit mentally and physically in a work environment. So I could find out what my limit was. And then I literally had to be like, okay, I'm about to become suicidal, but at least I reached my limit. Now it's time for me to take a vacation. For sure. So I feel like you can celebrate success. But if you go on a vacation, I believe there should be a goal behind it. Oh, absolutely. So if you're like, I'm just going to take a vacation because I found a good deal on Groupon. Okay, why don't you take that vacation after your business has benchmarked a certain thing why don't you take a vacation after you opened up another facility why don't you take that vacation when you bought a second house or you refinance or like you did something good so that way the vacations aren't just for no reason you can say hey i'm taking a vacation because i hired my hundredth employee that feels good yeah that's as opposed to i took a vacation because i just said fuck it whatever yeah i mean when i think about it now i guess the reason i've appreciated vacations up till this point and it's going to restart again and less than two months when I started law school is like I was always fucking working hard as hell on school and work Mm -hmm. and then I would have this break for like a few days where I would snowboard or go somewhere like warm and relax so no you're absolutely right though but I agree with you again on the people you surround yourself with like if you're not surrounding yourself with people that are always constantly working as hard as you are and as hard as you know that they can it might be time for some new people. And in your the life. thing is that people might say, oh, well, it's hard for me to find those people, whatever. So, what you do is you just listen to audiobooks of people who have that crazy mentality. And when you're in the car driving, you're listening to David Goggins talking about, don't be a bitch and I'm going to run 130 miles. And then when you get to work, you have this imaginary yeah. friend that pushes you. You know, you're listening to motivational speakers, you're doing whatever for you sure. can. So, you're surrounding your brain to recreate these types of. Uh, healthy environments to push you for sure getting back on track a little it was a productive conversation but i want to ask you about cannabis use Uh you know as someone who's in the recovery business i'm very fascinated to see your view on cannabis because i'm sure that it's probably different than a lot of people's so what's your view on it so people don't expect me to say this but i love cannabis i think cannabis is phenomenal i think it's like insane that it's illegal i think it's crazy that it's been illegal for years you got a guy literally doing 20 years in prison for like selling weed you know like it's insane i think alcohol is like the worst drug on the planet like alcohol and pharmaceuticals are insane that they're legal and can be bought so easily you could go get a script right now for opiates and like fake a back pain you know what i mean like it's so easy to get some of these hardcore drugs and then like marijuana people are like going to jail for it I'm a huge advocate for marijuana. I think it's great. I think that there are people out there that when they smoke weed, they become super less productive. It makes them more depressed. Absolutely. They lie about it being helpful. They live behind some fake facade that it's medicine when they're really just getting high. You know, I think a lot of people use weed to ho- cover up emotions, uh, make them antisocial. So I think there are people that smoke weed that probably would be a whole new person if they didn't smoke weed. And then you have some people that are potheads that are crazy successful. They're on point. They do see it as medicine. It helps them sleep at night. Uh, You have people who have cancer as kids. You know, I've seen uh, kids with cancer who their families are super religious, anti-weed, hate marijuana. 
but then they'll give their kid marijuana and it's the first time they're eating in six months on their own. So there is a lot of medicinal uses for it with people who have cancer or people who have seizures or whatever. I don't think there's anything wrong with it at all. I think for people who are seeking help, when they try to smoke weed that are drug addicts, uh, I think it's kind of silly because if you're calling for drug rehab, you have probably already tried to just smoke weed 10 years ago. So if you're addicted to opiates, coke, crack, alcohol, you probably have already tried just smoking weed probably a long time ago. So for you to lie to yourself that I'm just going to smoke weed and get off heroin, 99.9% of people are not going to be able to do that. You're just lying to yourself. And if you could, you would have done it a long time ago. Yeah. If marijuana was the solution, bro, you could buy marijuana anywhere right now. You would have just been smoking dabs all day long and not been on heroin 10 years ago when this started affecting your yeah. life or five years ago, whatever it is. So I think for drug addicts to take marijuana is kind of like going backwards and kind of like, you know, it's like you and I drive cars. We've known cars our whole lives. Yeah. For you and I to start driving around in a horse and carriage is kind of silly. Absolutely. Because we just be like, why don't we just drive? So when you've already crossed the line and experienced new things, it's hard for you to like go back to something that used to work as a kid. Mm -hmm. So for me, like I started with marijuana as a kid and then I started to do hard drugs. It would be silly for me to think that I would go back to something that didn't fill the void then. How is it going to fill it now when the void has only gotten bigger? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. A hundred percent. And you brought up the pharmaceutical industry and the medical industry a little bit throughout the episode. So I want to ask you the question of, do you think that people should put the amount of blame that they do on the pharmaceutical and medical industry for the rising use of, you know, pharmaceutical drugs, narcotics, opioids, all those things? Do you think that blame should be put on those so, industries? What the pharmaceutical industry has done is uh, it can't even be put into words how corrupt and illegal it is. You got pharmaceutical companies strategically going to small towns and trying to get as many people addicted to Oxycontin when it's been tested and known that it's just as addictive as heroin. Really, people don't really need to be on it. Advil and most like natural or like over-the-counter pain medicine works just as good as Oxycontin on a pain management level. Wow. And most people don't know that, but studies have proven that Advil and Aleve go pretty damn far compared to Oxycontin, which just gets you high and really fucks up your body. So what the pharmaceutical companies, Purdue in particular, have done is like they should be charged with like a thousand years in prison. Their whole family should go to prison till the end of time. It is insane what they have done to American people. The reason why we have a fentanyl epidemic is because we had a painkiller epidemic. The reason why we have a heroin epidemic is because we had a painkiller epidemic. You got hundreds of thousands of people, particularly young people that are getting prescribed types of painkillers that if you were 90 years old dying of cancer, it'd be hard for a doctor to justify you to get. Wow. So for doctors to give a 19-year-old kid 120 oxy-80s is just straight criminal. There's no reason for it. They knew exactly what they were doing. These are not uneducated street guys. It's not like you had a bunch of people in the hood selling some type of drug. They didn't know. These are doctors, people with degrees, people, hedge fund managers, people who invested heavy into pharmaceuticals, who planned to get 
America addicted on these hardcore drugs. It's fucking crazy. That is so similar. I've had friends shoot heroin and shoot Oxycontin. They cannot tell the difference. It's literally the same high. It's insane. Oxycontin, Dilaudid, Roxy's, you know, all these opiates, Opana, all that shit. So are they to blame? I don't know if blame's the right word, but... The culprits? Would I put a bunch of pedophiles next to a fucking children's hospital? You know what I mean? Would I put a bunch of pedophiles to babysit a bunch of little kids and then say that the pedophiles aren't to blame? Like, you knew what you were doing, bro. Yeah. Like, that's how fucked up it is. That's crazy. Like, you literally sent in doctors into small towns that had no drug history prior to this and strategically told them that the more you sell, the more money you'll make. It's fucking crazy. That's crazy. It's disgusting is what it is. So, for me, I'm not a victim of pharmaceutical, like, injustice. Yeah. But at the same... Because I just went out and started doing drugs, you know? Like, I was just yeah. a fucked up young kid. I was smoking crack before I ever did pills. Wow. But at the same time, pills were so readily available in Broward County that I did fall into this whole doctor shopping type of thing. In 2004, I was 14 years old. I was addicted to Oxys and Roxys. I read an article that there was more pain clinics in Broward County than there were McDonald's. Holy shit. Broward County prescribed more painkillers that county than the whole rest of the state combined. Florida prescribed more painkillers than the whole other nation combined. God damn. That's fucking crazy. So with that being said, how can we fight back against this? If you, as the CEO and co-founder of this amazing rehabilitation facility, what could we do? What would you love to see the society do as a whole to try and fight back against this addiction, drug abuse problem that we're facing in the country? So there's only two things you could do. And that's bring education to schools from people who have lived this, from real drug addicts, from people who have, have depression, from people who have overcome these things, have them tell their real personal stories, talk to parents on how to identify depression, how to identify you know, other mental illnesses, how to seek help. And then the second part is make that help actually readily available and affordable for anybody. Right now, if you, wanted, if you live in Michigan and you have a heroin problem and you have no insurance, good luck. You're not getting into a rehab. If you live in Ohio, Ohio has one of the worst epidemics of heroin on the planet. That's it is crazy. disgusting I never knew that. how bad it is in Ohio. You go to Ohio and like one in three people are on heroin. It's really bad over there. Wow. So if you don't have insurance and you don't have money, which most people in Ohio are middle class, lower class, don't really have a lot of money over there. They're not paying 30 grand to go to treatment. You're going to have to go to a state funded hospital, wait six, seven, eight, nine weeks and they'll, you'll come in and do a pre-assessment. They'll say, we'll call you. You're on heroin, bro. You might not even have a phone. Yeah. We'll call you when we have a bed. Okay, what do I do, bro? I'm on heroin on the streets. Let's say they do call you and they have a bed. You're going to get seven days of treatment and that's it. Wow. Maybe 14 days of detox, maybe. And then you're out. What the hell does that do? Yeah. Nothing. Nothing at all. It's an oil change. These people are going into treatment, getting clean for seven days, and they're just feeding them back into the wolves. What people really need is long-term continuous care where they go to detox for 7, 14 days. They go to some other types of outpatient program for 30, 90 days. They do sober living where they still have accountability and drug testing for three to six months and they come in three times a week. Then they help them get jobs. Like this is what we do at URP. We help people get jobs while they're in that care. 
Then when they get those jobs, when they graduate, we send them to a sober living that's in the area so they don't have to restart and get a job all over again. So integrating them back into society is just as important as getting them back off drugs. Because if you get someone off drugs and then say, hey, figure it out, guess what? Most people have records. Who's going to hire a, a heroin addict that hasn't had a job in five years and has a convicted felon? You know what I mean? You, they need help navigating through the workplace. You have people that are 30 years old, never done a resume in their life. You wow. know, that's fucking crazy, bro. That's crazy that people aren't focusing. You know, we don't have enough people and I'm one of them that isn't focusing on helping this problem, isn't focusing on being the solution, isn't focusing on being proactive to help these people. Like I never knew that that was a problem in Ohio, right? Like I never knew that there's not help for these people out there that didn't really have anywhere to turn, didn't have the money to get help for themselves. And, you know, like you said, like they don't have a phone. So how the fuck are they going to know in seven days if something does open up and then going further, like you said, like, okay, is that really even a help for them at that point? Or is it just a bandaid, a very temporary bandaid? That's, that's crazy. Do you think that there are people out there that are unhelpable? No, I don't even think 0.001% like could anyone ever reach that limit? Bro, when I see homeless people on the street, I truly believe that that person got clean and committed to a recovery program that that person can get clean. I've seen it. I've seen people come in 50, 60 years old, alcoholic, on crack, no teeth, no education, fumbling their words. People think they have crazy wet brain. They can't even talk. And I've seen that same person start talking in two weeks, three weeks. They're putting together whole sentences. Four weeks, they're telling you about the things they remember in their childhood. Six, seven, eight weeks go by, and you wouldn't even think this person had a drug problem. Wow. So That's in like amazing. such a limited time, you see these crazy turnarounds. I would say that the hardest thing is when people have severe uh, dual diagnosis. So the hardest thing is when someone is a hardcore alcoholic, hardcore opiate addict, and they also struggle with hearing voices. They struggle with seeing things that aren't there. And they need to be on some type of hardcore medication. So let's say you're a drug addict and you get off drugs, but now you also struggle with taking some medication that has a ton of side effects. Yeah, Bro, if you hear voices, you'll be so surprised how many addicts we get in that you would never know that this person hears voices. You'll get a kid who looks totally normal, has no other issues going on, has no tall telling signs that he struggles from any type of mental illness. And it'll come out that he's been hearing a lady that sings for seven years. Wow. And he has a voice that tells him to, to jump in front of cars. Wow. And he doesn't know who this voice is. We've had people come into our facility that says that there's 17 different people that, that live in their head with all different names. And they know all the names. Wow. So sometimes people judge people on the street corner and think that they're losers and they're lazy and they don't have any work ethic or they're just living off the system. They have no idea that some of these people have severe, severe mental illness. And from buying drugs on the street, I can tell you, most of the people that are homeless are not even real drug addicts. Most of those people just have mental illness and they drink alcohol because there's nothing else to do when you're homeless. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. So they become alcoholics, but most of those people need to be on medication and need to take it correctly. And if they took the medication correctly and got help, they could live a normal life. But it's not easy, but it's not impossible. Yeah, that seems like it was a common theme throughout our conversation of like, it's not easy by any means, but it's possible. Mm -hmm. It's possible to get someone help that needs it. It's possible for a person to realize that they need help. It's possible for if them. If you could stay clean for three weeks, you could stay clean for the rest of your life. Because all you do is 
do what you did for those three weeks consistently. Yeah. If you could lose five pounds, you could lose a thousand pounds. You know what I mean? Yeah. You just do the same thing that you do. Yeah. Are you going to hit roadblocks? Are you going to hit plateaus? Is it going to be difficult at some times? Yeah. But what you got to do is persevere. For sure. Perseverance is the one thing that makes a difference between somebody who gave up. Even like when you go to law school, it's not the smartest people that graduate. Some no. of the smartest people are the first people to fail and yeah. flunk out yeah. because they just don't have the perseverance. The stress gets them. But, bro, if you flunk a class, guess what? You just take it again. 100%. Some people don't know that. Like, they flunk a class and they're like, oh, I can't do law school. I know a guy, it took him like eight years to become a lawyer, but guess what? He's a lawyer now. Yeah. You know, and he's like, bro, everyone else was just quitting. I just flunked a whole bunch of classes, but I didn't quit. That's amazing. You know, that perseverance, it goes a long way. That dedication, motivation, it all goes a long way. Well, I have two last questions for you. The first is if someone wants to connect with you or contact you, what's the best way to do so? Probably through Instagram, Brian, B-R-Y-A-N dot the kid. Okay. So through Instagram is probably the easiest way to get in touch with me. Got it. Uh, you can always go to the website, unitedrecoveryproject.com. Awesome. And now for the final question, and this is one I ask every guest that mm -hmm. comes on the show. You've listened, so you know what it is. But Brian, what do you wish you knew when you were in your early 20s? I mean, um, hmm. What do I wish I knew as well as in my early 20s? So you understand, in my early 20s, I was probably already three, four, or five years clean. Yeah. You know, if there was anything I knew, it was uh, to like trust the process and keep working hard. Because I think in my early 20s, I had this period of time where I was like, well, I don't want to like work that hard. And like, I want a vacation and I want self care, whatever. And I really was like, okay with the amount of money I was making. I was making good money in my early 20s. You know, I think uh, like at 21 years old, I was just making like six figures. And I thought that was pretty good. I didn't know a lot of kids my age making that much money. And um, I kind of started relaxing and chilling and thinking that like this is just as good as it's going to get. And it doesn't have to be financial, but something happened to me where I started to think like, no, what if I just kept my foot on the gas for 10 more years. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I'm young. If I really bust my ass in my early twenties, I can be living a crazy life when I'm 40. I love that. You know, like if I just bust my ass for these 10 years, keep my foot on the gas. And I'm not saying just to make money or whatever, but I believe that my motivation comes from the more money I make, the more people I can help. Yeah. So if I can, do better for myself. I can help my family. I can help my friends. I can start nonprofits. I can do all sorts of things. So I started to think big. So if I could give myself any advice was like, think really big. Yeah, because sometimes I, I think it. of attainable goals, but sometimes I like to just write down things that seem crazy and I just work towards them. And more times than none, I do reach them. Amazing, bro. I, that's probably one of my favorite answers that's ever been said to that question because I try and reiterate on the show. Uh, and, a, and a reason I thought the show would be so important and valuable is because it's not someone older in their 60s that's gone through life that can't really relate with the younger generation as much as you and I can. And I think it's important for people to hear that real life experience and also like my perspective on something that I haven't gone through yet, but I can talk about it. And I've seen other people. I have older siblings in my life. I'm A lot of my closest friends are in their 30s or their 40s with kids. Mm -hmm. That's just how it's always been for me. But 
Listen, Brian, I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate you coming on the show, talking with me. I think this shit needs to be taught in late high school, early college, and needs to be talked about and not looked down upon as a conversation because we had a really good conversation today, a really in-depth, educational, informational conversation that a lot of people can take away and use in their own life. Use Whether it is helping someone that's addicted, whether they're addicted, or whether it's helping someone stay motivated to keep on crushing their goals and continue on that success path in their life. It's all very important. So I commend you for being a leader, Thank for you, helping awesome people. I respect you tremendously, but listen, all of you better go fucking listen to Hell Has an Exit. He tells some crazy ass stories on there. He's got some awesome guests and it's been awesome, bro. So I really appreciate the conversation and I fucking love his truck outside too. Thanks, Maverick. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah. All right. We'll talk soon again. Right. Have a good one, bro. You're probably guessing what I'm already going to say in this outro. Brian is the true definition of a leader. He's killing it in business, but he's helping people along the way. He is a truly great person, and he has gone through so many struggles in life that you'll hear about if you listen to his podcast, Hell Has an Exit, but he has become a true leader with a big heart, and I can't tell you how much that Brian emulates the qualities that a leader has in everything that he does in life, his outlook, his vision, his determination, his motivation, his heart, everything that I've seen about this guy is the best of the best. Also, like I said, he's a DBP gang member. So big shout out to DBP for being some of the best producers in the game. They have a whole list of podcasts that they produce, and you definitely want to listen to those ones. Always remember, be a leader and always learn in whatever you do in life. And that is it for today, everyone. So know that you just listened to an episode of the best of the best, Maverick's Guide to Success. Thank you, everyone, so much, and I hope you have a great rest of the week. Have a great weekend. And I will be back here next Wednesday to talk to all of you. Take care.